have to start with this handout. This the cover. And I can't go through everything. I won't go over the, the stuff on the left-hand side because you can get that in review. And even the right side is for, by way of review. But if I don't give you that, you're going to be, I believe it to be less fruitful. So let me start with this. <coughs> and this is so for you, Paul. I just want you to know that. Not, but this is how I describe it. It's just, I think of you when I look at this now, in perspective. But God is, one of the beautiful things about God is how he sets things that are intellectually irreconcilable we call that a paradox. That God doesn't ask us to reconcile. What God, God asks us to do is to not lean upon our understanding and faith accepts both sides. How can God be completely in control but man have the free agency of choice? Intellectual men, and dare I say, often in their pride, have basically sought to reconcile them but always at the expense of one or the other. You wind up, in the end of it all, a concoction of sort of this 80% this and 60% this or whatever. But I can say that God is completely in control and man is completely responsible for his choice. And yet in that, it gets people very angry that really want to take a, take a side. And, and it gets really goofy because it gets extreme. And then it's like, if you believe the other side, you, maybe you're not safe. Odd to me. And it's like, faith just says both sides work. And what's funny is, we can actually be a friend in both camps and somehow not trusted in both camps. Anyway, that's just the fun of it. But you know why? Because I just want to believe the Scripture. When the, when the Scripture says, for instance, God desires all men to be saved, do you know what I believe that means? That God desires all men to be saved. That's just weird, isn't it? But then we can talk about verses where who is consenting against this one? And the whole point of it is, is that God sets these things before us and then says, do you trust me that one day you're going to actually look back and go, wow, that was pretty simple. Now, the greatest minds of the day, nobody seemed to get this Jesus thing the first time around. I mean, these are brilliant men who search the scriptures daily. And yet, somehow in all of that, Jesus shows up and they don't go, oh, duh, clearly this is everything. You would think one guy would have come up with that. And that just tells me something. Am I so proud, so self-aggrandizing that I can assume that I'm going to do better than those guys? I'd rather be humble and go, you know what? I don't understand, but I can say I don't have to. I really believe that somehow this is going to work out. Case in point, God sets before us four irreconcilable, seemingly irreconcilable things in the Old Testament about who this Messiah must be. By the way, that goes all the way to the fall. But we can even go before that to beautiful hints and types and so forth. But let me just say this. There are four things that everything sort of boils down to. So let me say, the first is the king overall. He's the king of kings overall. And we can take that all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. We're at about roughly 1000 BC where God speaks to David and says, when David wants to build God a house, and God says, you know what? You want to build me a house? Love it, David, but I'm not going to let you do that because you are not building it on someone else's blood. I'll do that. I'm going to do it on my own. And so God says, I'm going to build you a house. And I have the verse here where God says, in essence, it's not, going to be, it's not going to be you. It's going to be from your loins after you die. Someone's going to come and he will have an everlasting throne. This is one of the problems that the, the Orthodox Jews, and again, there are lots of groups of people the Orthodox Jews have, is that when Jesus came, he didn't seem to conquer the enemy the way they assumed he should. They're not rising against the Romans. Is that what they're expecting? Well, here's the ironic thing. If you actually look at the text, they actually say, we've never been in bondage to anyone, which I think 
You finally aren't reading the same book I am. But it's like they didn't think they were slaves at the moment. But the problem is that eternal government or the eternal empire is actually what the Romans called themselves. It's really nothing. You can't even get a job there now, with all due respect to Italy. But there is one problem that has been with every human being, and that's sin. Jesus has conquered the eternal. It's just not exactly the enemy you actually pointed out at the moment. He is the king over everything. But he also has to be the servant under all. Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 make it really, really, really clear. For instance, it tells us, and I'm looking here at Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's a very hard text to swallow because of the result. He has put him to grief. When you make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day, and as the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, he shall see the labor of his end and be satisfied by the knowledge of my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It's pretty simple. So how can you be the king over all and yet be the servant under all? But he also tells you he has to be a man. That actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Although... It's a dangerous text to use in the Greek because it says from the seed of the woman. Now, I'm not trying to be crude, but it is important to recognize, with all due respect, women do not produce seed, they produce eggs. Uh, and again, you, to, to, just so you know I'm not getting weird or like I'm making this up, when the Old Testament is translated into the Greek, we call it the Septuagint, the Greek word for seed, sperma. I'm done saying it, but you get the point. Now, weird, and of course, I already look at that and I think, well, I can't figure that out. Then I get to Isaiah 7 and I'm like, oh, it's a virgin birth. It all starts to make sense. But he has to be a man. And I go beyond that to the book of Ruth, <clears throat> living out, by the way, as we look here, Leviticus 25, and that is the whole idea of the lover of marriage, is that a redeemer has to be from your family. And that's exactly what Hebrews brings up when it tells us that because the children shared in flesh and blood, Christ himself had to become the same, that he through death he might deliver all of us who were in the bondage of our fear of death. Now, the point is, if he was going to redeem us, he has to be from our family. So I expect him to be fully a man. But then there's another problem. Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel passes, or God passes this judgment on the bad shepherds. And it is, by the way, one of the most important texts to me as a pastor, because he gives five railing accusations against them. And he says, for instance, the weak have not healed, or the, the weak have not strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the scattered you haven't sought after, the lost. And he goes after these particular things. He goes, but with cruelty and force you have ruled them. So you know what God says? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down there and be the good shepherd. I will be the deliverer. <clears throat> well, we would expect that. <clears throat> the problem is, and the rest of the text in Ezekiel 34, what's clear in evidence is that God himself isn't just recruiting an individual, he himself is going to do it. This is one of the reasons why people get really bent out of shape when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the, not a, but the good shepherd. Because it's a very simple text to draw to, because God says, you guys are horrible shepherds, the only good shepherd's going to be me, and I'm coming down to do this. I mean, it wouldn't take much for you to be able to go... He's calling himself God. Does that make sense? So, and I love for you to, again, I'm running you through the hallways here, and I recognize that, but I'm trying to set text on this. So we have these particular responsibilities. For him to be king over all, for him to be servant under all, for him to be fully man, but for him to be fully God. I'm going with, at, at very least, that's 200%. 
Now, God could do that all in a single essay. But He doesn't. What God does instead is He recruits four people, empowers them by His Holy Spirit, and gives each one of them the privilege of holding the quill while God writes through the perspective to convince you that He's one of those things. So let me say it this way. An event is taking place and instead of four scriptwriters, you give each one a theme and you give the directors the responsibility of the camera angle. Let me say, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, <clears throat> there could be a situation happening where someone I know about I'm trying to counsel because I love them and I'm being a pastor to them. But while that's happening, at the same time, over here, someone's trying to do something against my wife, and I'm actually stepping in the middle of that. And while I'm stepping in the middle of that, I'm actually stopping my children from running onto the tracks of the train. Now, all of those things may be happening at the same time. But I tell Paul, Paul, I need you to represent me in this as a father. Where's that camera angle going? Me with my children. A lot of other things are happening around, but he might tight pan that in to that information because the rest of it will actually dilute the emphasis of that. Does that make sense? And if you were to look at the four Gospels from the perspective of the same situations happening, but from the perspective of four directors, each given the beautiful task through the Holy Spirit of presenting it to you, you understand why God just gave us four Gospels. <clears throat> so when someone says, <clears throat> for instance, it says in the Gospel of Mark that there were two blind guys, but it says in the Gospel of Mark there was one. It says in the Gospel of Matthew that there were two demoniacs on the other side of the lake in Gennesaret, but on, it says actually in the Gospel of Mark there was one. How many were there? Well, there were two. That's pretty evident. Matthew makes that clear. However, but this one says one, but it never says only one. God through Mark is zooming the camera in on a single individual for a purpose. Does that make sense? Interesting, by the way, every time you see two compared to one, it's always going to be in the Gospel of Mark. No, Matthew, for purpose. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Does that make sense so far? Let me get you even, let's just <clears throat> throw some more salt on that fire. <clears throat> Jaden, Tunde, Lois, Daniel, Four individuals. Yesterday, apparently, two people were stabbed. Was that yesterday, right? In Kentish Town, within walking distance of where Lois lives. You all with me so far? Let's say Lois walks out and sees the information. Let's say Jaden, on the other hand, is actually standing with an individual who is next to Lois and he decides to interview that individual. Lois is giving the account to the police today. This is, by the way, she hasn't, that I'm aware of. Okay. But he's, no, you with me so far? Daniel, on the other hand, actually was there with Lois. We won't try to create any scandal out of it. And, <clears throat> and with that, though, Daniel actually doesn't tell the police until sometime considerably later. Tunde is the policeman. Tunde has received the testimony 
ultimately of Jaden, although it's secondhand in his case, is received the testimony of Lois, which was firsthand. And if you will, let's say he's even received the testimony of Daniel, it's just a little bit farther removed. And he has to write his report. Now, are you with me on this so far? Now, in this situation, we have two eyewitnesses. Does that make sense? We also have two, in, in, two individuals who have gathered that information, but weren't personally there. You with me so far? Two eyewitnesses, two individuals who were not there. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. Of these individuals, which two of them would have to put it in a linear order? In other words, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Which two of these, which, which group, would have to be able to put it in an orderly fashion? Why? Yeah, because you don't actually have the experiences to draw from. Does that make sense? Now, on the other hand, and more than likely, if Lois actually experienced all that, she might be fairly jumbled because of the experience. Does that make sense? She might, though, have the benefit of being able to put it thematically. She might be able to say, well, thematically, actually, I saw this happen, and I saw this happen, and this happen, and they all kind of play into this thing. I could see these things leading up to it that they might not have in that information. Does that make sense? The reason I say that is, do you know how many Gospels actually tell you that they're actually going to give it to you in a linear fashion? One. The Gospel of Luke. He writes to a specific audience. The only one who actually, we know specifically who his audience is, Theophilus. Who, by the way, his name means God's friend or a lover of God. I think it's to me. Uh, and he says, in account that many other people have sort of sought to make an account of it, well, I thought so also, O oh good Theophilus, to do so, to give you an orderly account. Orderly, by the way, literally is a, literally, a, a linear account. Luke is the one person who actually tells you he's actually going to try to give it to you in, chron- in, chron- in chronological order. So when someone says, for instance, well, wait a minute, in the Gospel of John, it seems like Jesus clears the temple in chapter 2, but it seems like the other Gospels, on the other hand, seem to clear, Jesus shows up, he has Palm Sunday, and then on Monday he clears the temple. Did he clear it twice? Because that would be a natural impression, if we're going to try to not bend on Scripture. Or is, there, or is the Bible false? And I'm like, well, did John tell you that he was writing in it in a linear fashion? To be honest, if you're familiar with Haggadah, the order of a Passover, you realize that everything that John writes is basically Haggadah. It's the beauty of it. It's like there has to be the candles lit by the woman. So what do you have in chapter 1? The light was manifest before us. And then what do you do? You prepare the wine... Sure, I get that. And Jesus turns water into wine. Strange. And before you can actually have the house celebrate, you have to have clement. You drive out the leaven. So what does Jesus do in John chapter 2? He drives out the money changers. Specific term. Drives out wine. Because he's driving out the leaven. In other words, John's thinking from a very different perspective than trying to give it to you in a linear fashion. He's giving it to you in a theme. Does that make sense? That's part of the beauty to me. When I start to look at these things, I go, God, you're so cool. Now, let's add to that. You have an eyewitness who tells you right away. You have an eyewitness who tells you, in this case, 60 years later. You have a guy who interviews, at least the most common conservative approach is that he interviews one of the eyewitnesses himself. And then you have a guy who collects information from a whole lot of sources. And they're so similar that they call them three of them, they call them synoptic, which just means similar. I just think that's amazing. 
By the time you put it together, you realize this is one story with four emphasis. So let's develop that for just a quick second, and then I'm going to just start to give you some ideas here, okay? What do we know about Matthew from Scripture? He's a tax collector. We do know that. We also know that he has another name in Scripture as well. Levy. Now, it's fairly likely. Well, let me just say it this way. It is to consider. Because it is a common practice to name someone in your family after a famous person in your family within Jewish heritage. Paul, were you named after anyone famous in your family? Or was it... Yeah. Sadly, no. Sadly, no. I was named as someone famous in the New Testament, even more ironic. Yeah, that is <laughs> extremely ironic. You decided at least they'd have given you a song. They gave me a second name, also Mark. Really? Yeah. I never complained when I... And they're both Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Glory to God. Yeah. Who would have known? I know. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so where did this guy get the name Levy? Could it be possibly that he was from the tribe? It's possible as much as it's not, if that makes sense, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But I will say this. Nobody quotes more Old Testament scriptures than Matthew does. But if he really was from that priestly family, a lot of things make an awful lot of sense to me. Because he has to become the least loved individual in the Jewish culture. Because he is not just a betrayer. He is, a, he is, in essence, in league with the enemy, as far as that concerns. You're probably aware that in a, uh, the way that the tax system works is that <clears throat> they, they, the Romans would find a particular spot that they thought was money-worthy. Usually that was in sort of direct routes, trade routes, and so forth. There's the Via de Mars that goes one way, and then there's the Silk Route that goes east to west. Uh, and by the way, those two mean in Capernaum. And then what they do is they basically have an, a bid, a bid-off. So they'd say, who can make us the most money here? And they, the one thing the Romans weren't dummies in, they were a lot of things they weren't, is they knew that the Jews didn't kill Jews. And so, they'd have Jewish people bid. I think I could make a million here a year. I think I could make three million here. Well, who do you think wins? The guy with the highest bid. And the guy with the highest bid becomes what we know as a chief tax collector. That's his booth. There is one guy we know in the New Testament who's a chief tax collector. Do you know who he is? Zacchaeus. Yeah. He was a man of high stature socially within the Romans, completely no stature among the Jews, and not very tall in real life. <clears throat> and then what he would do is that he'd recruit guys who were responsible then to get him that money. Everything that got beyond that was their income. And you could, there were a handful of things that were poll taxes, travel taxes, land taxes, tree taxes, certain things that were expected. And you put yourself at Capernaum, for instance, which was where Matthew was. I mean, that's people traveling east to west, carrying their goods. That's people that work fishing, which means I, it's very hard to believe, for instance, that Peter, James, John, and Andrew didn't know he was because they had to pay him taxes. Does that make sense? So in other words, but then they got creative. They could figure out other things. Hair taxes, nose taxes, shoe taxes. It didn't matter. And you, how could you argue with them? Because they always had a Roman soldier next to you ready to kill you. I remind you, their whole thing is to extort as much money out of you as they can because that's how they make their money. But what happens if that guy that won the bid doesn't make his money? Well, then the Romans kill him. That's a good example, so you know not to do that. So he's very serious about making sure you're making the money. Does that make sense? 
But let me tell you some of the benefits of a tax collector. He has an endless supply of writing materials, and he's taught Roman shorthand. He's the one guy I know of that Jesus is 12 that could write as fast as you could speak. Is it possible that Matthew wrote the Sermon on the Mount listening to Jesus while he was saying it? It is possible. I remind you, Jesus said that. A 25-minute walk at most, and that's what slow people away from Capernaum, up on him. Fantastic thought. Now, y'all with me so far? I'm just sort of starting to paint the image here. How does it... And, and so then I start asking, how would a guy, if he was from a Jewish family, but more so from a Jewish religious family, how does that guy get to become public enemy number one? What makes him leave that for the other? For something he knows will be absolutely hated. Is the hated thing tax collecting or being Being a tax collector, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is, you know one word that is used five times more in this gospel than the rest of them combined is the word hypocrite. And I wonder if Matthew saw such political hypocrisy among the, the priesthood that he's like, if this is what religion is, I don't want any part of it. I might as well just get what I want from the world. So how do you win a guy like that over? You know what Matthew and Jesus had in common? They had the same enemies. You know we're so busy trying not to get enemies, but when you take a stand for something, you're going to get enemies. And sometimes when you get enemies, other people see the hypocrisy in the people who are hypocrites hating you, and draws them, for what it's worth. Now, I'm not telling you, go out and try to make them. 42% of this particular gospel is unique material. <clears throat> uh, it's not the most. John, by the way, 94% of the gospel of John is unique material. We're going to see soon. So, who, which of these would you give to a guy that's well endowed in the understanding of two kingdoms? The, the secular kingdom of Rome, he understands that well. But also, if you will, the religious kingdom of the Jews of the day, which I remind you is not what he's into because this guy that's sort of a renegade, itinerant preacher starts walking in here and he flips both on their head. So, which one do you give him? King of kings, servant under all. Man or God? Which one would you give him? The type would give Jesus. Yeah. Well, what, no. If you were if you were sitting down with Matthew, you're saying we need to present Jesus under these four lights. Which one do you think he'd be more apt to take? King, servant, man, God. I, you know, I go with King. We'll talk about. You no, know, I think I love that. Yeah. Um, He's so understanding of kingdoms. Not that God has to use that. He can do it without it. But to give you an idea, he uses the term kingdom of heaven 32 times in this book. Do you know how many times <clears throat> the rest of the Gospels use the term kingdom of heaven? None. I'll give you an idea there. He uses the term kingdom over 50 times. He uses the term son of David over nine times in it, and the term that it would be fulfilled or fulfilled 36 times. This is a guy who knows Old Testament scripture. And the more that he watches Jesus, the more he realizes he's the fulfillment of it as the king. 
So it sort of makes sense. <clears throat> now, if you were a tax collector today, you wouldn't have to go to school like a doctor might, for instance. You would go to seminars. And you would continue to go to seminars to keep up on the newest tax laws or whatever the case would be. That's the way Matthew learns. It's interesting. It's also the way Matthew writes. Matthew writes from the perspective of seminars. There will be seven of them. Do you know what word we would use for a seminar? Sermon. Seven times, distinctly in the Gospel of Matthew, they are collected as sermons. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount. And I love the fact that the Lord has incorporated all of this into the Gospel of Matthew. Does that make sense so far? So the moment you start saying, what Gospel would you expect to find the Sermon on the Mount on? The moment I hear sermon, I already think, well, Matthew, that's what he writes. That's going to be from Matthew. Does that make sense? Where would you expect to find... Okay, let me say this. Of the four Gospels, just knowing this. Again, King, Servant, Man, God. Which two Gospels would you expect to find the Christmas story in? And why? Story is, isn't it? It's only in two of the four Gospels. Oh, so what do you mean? The one that emphasizes him being a man. That would be very important, wouldn't it? Because he has to be born if he's going to be a real man. Excellent. And then there's the one where wise men, kings, show up from another country, from the east, and give gold and incense. Which one would you expect that in? Matthew, the king. As a result of that, Herod gets really flipped out. And you know what Matthew calls him? King Herod. And he wants to kill every competition he has. Do you see how that works? Now, if you get that much information, let me just say, writing style, we're heading to sermons, seven of them. And with each of them, and I don't know if you do this, but it's like, often there's a focal point, something we keep returning back to. For Matthew, it's the hill. Five different times Jesus is going to be on a hill. So I might say that we could look at it as king of the hill in Matthew. This would make sense. Mm. Now I'm going to walk you through the whole gospel quickly. <clears throat> you might want to prepare yourself, buckle in for this. <laughs> and there is, and again, this is just preparing you for this. Now here's the cool part. You can totally disagree, but I challenge you to read through the gospel on your own and see what if it stands out to you. Let me show you what I mean by this. <clears throat> I like to, we basically, what we'll do is we'll do start on each of the Gospels. We'll say, how does it start? How does it end? And what's the emphasize in between? Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me say this. There are two other Gospels. We've said that it had to be man and king. So the only two that remain are God and the servant. Are you with me on that? One of those two Gospels starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, and one starts at the beginning of time. Which one's which? John's the beginning of time. Why? Because John presents Jesus as God. And so he has to start at the beginning of time, because he's the only one there. In the Gospel, just to kind of put this in you, just to give you some fun to think about it, God actually gives himself a name when Moses asks him. Who do I say sent me? God's response is, I am. We would say, I am that I am. We look in Hebrew, it's I am. And my natural impression is, you are a what? You are a who? Unique to the Gospel of John, seven I am statements. He answers the question, because John shows you he's God. 
Isn't that beautiful how that works? Which means that Mark, presenting Jesus as servant, starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. Do you need a birth for a servant? Do you need anyone to show up for a servant? By the way, for what it's worth, remember I said there were two Christmas stories in essence? There's the one with the wise men that bring their gifts to the newborn king, and then there's the one where the shepherds show up to a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes thrown in a manger. You're with me on that? Do you know that in only one of those stories you actually get the birth? And it's the Gospel of Luke where it presents Jesus as man. In the Gospel of Matthew, I challenge you to take a look. You actually, what you get is God showing up, and we'll talk about that here in a second. And then these wise men show up at the house. That's what it says. They don't, they don't, we don't have anywhere that those wise men show up at a manger, at a cave or a barn or whatever you want to put Jesus in at that moment. By the way, if you've ever been to Israel, where are the mangers? They're outside. They're outside because animals eat in those things. And you want them outside because then you get animals can go on all sides of it. Anyways, it makes it even more amazing to think that Jesus could have been laid out and below the stars. Ah, anyways, it's kind of a fun thought. Okay, with me so far? Have I, have I already blown your head off? I think I'm with you. Okay. Well, here we go. This is, my this is my chance to see if I can throw this out. First of all, there are two kinds of lineage. There's the Jewish and the Greek. The, the Jewish starts at the earliest date and works its way to the current. The Greek will start today and work your way backwards. Does that make sense? There are two places where you get a lineage. The king and the man. Matthew presenting Jesus as the king will start in, eff in essence emphasizing David. Matter of fact, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In case you were kind of wondering where he was going to go with it. Just to put it in right, right. And he goes right to David and he takes you all the way to Jesus. But he has to do that through one of the two people. Either through Joseph or through Mary. Does that make sense? Now let me ask you, from a king's perspective, what's important? If you were a prince, are they looking at your mom or your dad for you to be a king? Your dad. And the gospel of Matthew goes through Joseph. The Gospel of Luke will go backwards through Mary's lineage because, let's face it, if you're a human, you have to have a mom. And as it goes back, it goes all the way back, not to David or Abraham, but to Adam. You can't get more man than coming from the first one. She so goes all the way back to Adam. Isn't that kind of fun how that works out? I mean, and I'm just pointing out some things. But we'll get on it. Well, wait a minute. Joseph really wasn't, he was Jesus' legal father, but we know that he wasn't a DNA contributor. Well, let me just say one thing to add to that. And again, I'm, I have to pick and choose. But in the Gospel of Jeremiah, dare I say it that way, uh, Jeremiah curses a line of David <coughs> because it's so evil. Interesting, because that cursed line is the line of Joseph. But the blessed line is through Mary. God actually reconciles the cursed line of David to Jesus' family. Pretty amazing. Through, if you will, being stepped at. Okay. Again, I don't expect you to get all this, but you're certainly welcome to. Then, of course, there's Jesus' birth. The response is that there is a... There, uh, the response of the baby king is that the Magi show up for what it's worth if you want. Take a look. You are aware, right, that Abraham actually had a, a bunch of kids after Sarah died? Are you aware of that? 
Yeah, it's fun to look at, and it gets even better. In the book of Genesis, it tells us that after Sarah died, Abraham married again. He's in his hundreds, and her name is Keturah. And he has, a, he has a whole bunch of kids. Jewish? Well, they're Abrahamic. <laughs> you know? So, and... Yeah, well, I mean, it was, yeah, it's obviously the, 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 the maid, obviously, that... Like, for instance, yeah, would you call him Jesus? I would say Jewish, no, but I would say they're a son of Abraham, in that sense. They're Abrahamic. Yeah. You know? And in this case, so, you know, here's the interesting thing. According to the text, and again, I'm not even going to tell you where it is, because I just want you to read it and find it. Uh, he gives them gifts and sends them east. And then the prophecy is when the Messiah comes that all of the sons of Abraham will wind up there. You know what's interesting is that actually when we actually look at the prophecies in the book of Psalms and Isaiah about them, it says dromedaries carry their land. Do you know what dromedaries are? What are they? What animal? <coughs> Camels. Yeah. There's like there's dromedaries and Bactrians. The difference is one hump or two. Uh, and it says, dromedaries cover the land, bringing with them gold and incense. God's already known. In other words, them showing up shouldn't surprise us because God promised that would happen. They're children of Abraham coming back. Well, anyways, for what it's worth. So what happens? The king of the day, Herod, gets freaked out about it, so he wants to wipe out all the, t- the competition. By the way, what's the one gospel where we're going to be emphasized that Jesus has to, and his family have to go to Bethlehem? Matthew. Why? Because Bethlehem is the city of David. And he's from the kingly line, so they have to go there. That would make sense, wouldn't it? So Herod tries to kill all of the babies, and then that's the end of our first bit. Now, from chapters 4 to 7, now we get our middle. That's how it's introduced. It's introduced to the birth of Jesus and the obvious opposition to the incumbent kingdom. John the Baptist shows up on the scene in chapter 4, and you know what he says? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. Jesus is baptized. Now, here's a fun one. And it, we are recording. So, if you're like, I don't get that, good. You can rewind later, but consider this. While Jesus is being baptized, three particular statements are made. Let me put these out to you. Ready? Here's one. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's the next one. You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Third one. You are my beloved Son in you I am well pleased. Did you get that? Now, of those three, by the way, which one did God say? I'll tell you. He said them all. Does that make sense so far? Now, let me lay these out. Do you know which one we actually don't read God speaking in there? Well, consider it's actually the one where Jesus is God. There's a couple of things you won't find in there, and for good reason. Now, so let's put this out. Ready? Listen to this closely. And I'm asking you to, to engage your minds in this. Ready? King, servant, man. That's what remains. Are you with me so far? If I were to say, you are my beloved son, am I speaking to the person or to the crowd? The person. When the father says, you are my beloved son, who is he speaking to? Jesus. And you, I am well pleased. Who is he speaking to? Jesus. This is my beloved son. Who is he speaking to? The crowd. the crowd. In whom I'm well pleased. The crowd. Do you hear those two differences? Now, which one do you think God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? The king, the servant, the man. 
king. The Father is letting you know this is the king. Speak personally, you are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. That leaves servant, man. 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 So the servant is, and I love this, because when I look at Mark, one of the beautiful parts about it is I read it going, teach me how to be a real servant. And I get to that and I realize he's like, look, you need to know, you are my beloved son. Reconcile that. And then let, let me tell everyone else I'm all pleased by this guy. Isn't that just epic how to put all that together? Anyway, that's just fun to think about. All right, with me so far? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased is Matthew. Then we have Jesus being tempted. By the way, for what it's worth, Jesus is the recording of Jesus' temptation is in three of the four Gospels. Which Gospel would you not expect to find Jesus' temptation in? King, servant, man, God. Why? Not to be tempted. And that's exactly right. You do not find the temptation in the Gospel of John. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now, interesting, they're all recorded in a different manner. By the way, even the temptations themselves, their order is different. I think that's interesting. In Matthew, by the way, and we'll see, for instance, in others, you'll see one that's just sort of a casual statement. One, the emphasis is that he's being tempted the whole time. But in Matthew, it is a showdown. 40th day, he'd been fasting for 40 days, and on that 40th day, the devil crawled up into his grill. Now, was the devil tempting him the other days as well? Yes, it was, because the Gospels make that clear. But the director, Matthew, is not focusing on those 40 days. He's focusing on that last day because it's a showdown of kingdoms and kings. Does that make sense? Do you remember the three temptations? Command the stone to become bread. Command the stone to become bread. Awesome. Yeah, jump off the, the uh, pinnacle of the temple in the simplest sense, show off. I mean, I mean, he even quotes Psalm 91. Oh, you know, it says he'll have his angels catch you and bury you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. It's like people are looking for that. Hey, you jump off this building, people are going to go, oh, that's Show it off, man. But what was the last of them? What was the other one? Oh, yeah, bow down. But what did he show them to tempt them? The kingdoms of the world. Now, which one do you think was the... Well, I would say you save your, your best for last, if that makes sense. You try one, it doesn't work. You try one, well, this is going to work. In the Gospel of Matthew, which was the last one, he showed him the kingdoms of the world. Does that make sense? How about this? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world? I just handed in an application become a citizen of the United Kingdom. He showed him us. What are kingdoms of man? Do you realize what the devil knows better than you is what Jesus really wanted was you? If he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, he showed him this one. He showed him us. Now, again, remember in Scripture, there's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are the ingredients of the world. John tells us that in 1 John. And remember, a lust is an appetite that you are you order off the menu. And that's what the devil, he throws three, because why? It's like, turn the stone to bread. What is that? That's a lust of the flesh. Your body wants food. It's legitimate. Pride of life. Throw yourself off the building. Come on, show off. 
But what's the one thing the devil knew? If I showed Jesus this, this would genuinely tempt him? It was you. He could show Jesus you, and Jesus would, oh, I want that so bad. How did the devil have any right to do that? The Lord would allow it. And the Lord would allow it because he was going to win. You're aware of the fact that Jesus has two major temptations, if you will. There's this one and then in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd like you to consider the fact that man started in the garden and wound up in the wilderness. Jesus met in the wilderness to conquer the devil so he could go to the garden and take his bath. Something to consider. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, which emphasizes humankind, what would be your death blow there? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Pride of life. Pride of life. And the last one there is throw yourself off the temple. Does that make sense? And they're still like, well, which order was it? Well, by the way, how many of the gospel writers were eyewitnesses? Which ones? None of them. Well, actually two. In this, oh, in this temptation? No, no, not in the. I'm sorry, not in the temptation. How many just of the gospel writers were? Might I say they're part of the twelve? They were there to actually observe Jesus and watch him. Yeah. Matthew clearly, and John. Mark we don't meet until Acts, except possibly the strange little text in the Gospel of Mark that says when Jesus is being arrested, there's this young guy in his night clothes, and they grab him and he runs out naked. Is that Mark? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't build a whole sermon on that. Yeah. And I'd be like, could that be Mark? It could be. Yeah. Now what about Luke? Where do we meet Luke? We meet him in Troas in the Gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. That's after Paul is trying to go north and south, or north and due north, due west, Istanbul and Ephesus doesn't. The Holy Spirit stops him from both. He winds up in Troas. He gets a vision of a Macedonian man. And then he winds up with this doctor named Luke. We'll talk about him on another day. But, by the way, a guy that gets beat up as much as Paul does, it's kind of good to have an itinerant doctor with you. Wouldn't you say it? Okay. Y'all with me so far? Because it just, oh, it just gets more and more beautiful. Stop me if I'm just killing you, please. It's a showdown of powers, and Jesus walks out of that victorious. That's the end of chapter 4. Well, actually, I'd say that. Yes, that's, in essence, the end of that section, but we're still in chapter 4. Does that make sense so far? Mm-hmm. So then he begins recruiting ambassadors. That's in chapter 4, starting in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and teach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you realize that Jesus quoted the same thing that John the Baptist did? Mm-hmm. Notice he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It tells us in 4.23 that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That would make sense it would be here. And his fame went out through all of Syria. Before that, he gathers four fishermen. What do we know about fishermen? They know how to work hard. They know how to stay up late. And they, if they know, in sense it appears as if these guys were raised around that place, they're net fishermen. You throw the net as low as you can, and you pull it up and you let the chief fishermen sort through it once you do. Skimming the top is never going to get you a good catch. Does that make sense? Now, they also know how to handle smell. I lived in a, in a fishing town. Fish do not smell. They're the one meat that I'm aware of that rots exponentially. In other words, it gets bad, and then it gets bad really quick. Well, it gets better. 
And they know how to get their men with good, strong hands. They're gruff hands. Because they know how to handle If you're handling ropes for quite a while, you're going to get some calluses. Throw the nets low. Bring in everything you can. Let me, let me handle it. Does that make sense? You know why I say that? Because it tells us this. And there's a thing that is called, by the way, the marriage of an antecedent. And what that means is if a verse focuses on a subject, in the next verse it says they or them, it's going to focus on whatever that subject was in the last verse. Does that make sense? The focus was on the disciples in the previous verse. And then it says, well, look, and then it says in verse 24, and same went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. Who's the they? The disciples. Do you know what the disciples were doing? They were fishing men. They threw the net as low as they could, and they dragged it to the chief fisherman. And you know what they found at the bottom? They found people with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptic, paralytics, and he healed them. That's what we see. And that prepares us for our first sermon and our first hill. So what we read in chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus seeing the multitudes, and he has healed them all. That means there are piles of cots and chains and crutches that will never be needed again. And you sit and you go, who in the world am I now? I was the crazy person. By the way, it does say various torments and diseases. Do you know the difference? Torment's an emotional thing. These people brought people with emotional issues to Jesus and he healed them. That's a crazy thought. Dare I say it that way? And now you look and you're like, well, who am I? I was the paralytic. I was the possessed guy. And if Jesus doesn't redefine you right there, all you'll know yourself as is what you were. And you hear people like that. You know what I am? I'm an ex-gangbanger. I'm like, no, that's what you were. What are you now? You know? Like, hi, how are you? You know, how are you? Not bad. I didn't ask how you were. How are you? Right? And it's like, and so Jesus says, let me tell you who you are. You're blessed. And that's our first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> it is, in essence, if you think about it, people who are newly transformed by Jesus. Everybody needed Jesus. And he looks, and they've all been touched by him. That's our first of our five hills. Because he went up on a mountain, he was seated with his disciples, and his dis- note, by the way, I wonder many people didn't come, because it says he was seated, and his disciples came to him. You're probably aware of the fact, traditionally, a teacher sits, and his pupils stand. I'm guessing so they don't fall asleep, but anyway, not a problem here. Chapters 5 through 7, the simplest part is, who you, who you are, by the way, who you are to you, you're blessed. Have you ever thought that would be the greatest thing to start with? Now that I'm saved, you know what I am? I am blessed. That's what I am. I'm blessed. Say it eight times. And then, let me tell you who you are to everyone else. Salt and light. And then, while you're at it, Jesus is like, let me tell you who I am. I'm the fulfillment of all scripture. Now let's get into your heart. What do you really treasure? Do you treasure this world? Or do you put your, God bless you, or do you put your treasures in heaven? Because let me tell you what that'll look like. The way that you fast, the way that you give, the way that you pray will be very different. I'll do it to be seen by men because it's all about the world. I'll do it to be seen by me. And, and then he goes, and then basically after all of that, and I guess that's a very loose paraphrase for the sake of time, and he's like, all right, no. Do what I say or don't. But if you don't, you're going to still build a house. If you do, you're still going to build a house. Houses are going to be there. The difference is what you're building it on. If you do what I say, you're building it on the rock. If you don't, you're going to build it on the sand. Both might look like the same houses. But I want to warn you, the rain's going to fall on both. The wind's going to blow on both. <coughs> the flood's going to rise on both. 
A Christian life is not without storms. As a matter of fact, storms only prove where your house is going. The difference is whether the house stands. That's the difference. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's our first sermon to new believers, to people newly transformed. Now it picks up. Chapters 8 through 10, the gospel in action. What we see is Jesus having authority as a king over everything. Leprosy, paralysis, wind and waves, demons, death, blindness. In all of those cases, what we find is this is where we see an emphasis on two demons, or two demonized guys at the gatherings, and two blind guys. Why? Because Matthew was not focusing on the individual need. That would make more sense from the perspective of the servant. He shows that there is blindness in these guys and Jesus has authority over it as king. So in, unique to the Gospel of Matthew, it will be that that pans wide because the issue isn't the individual person. Because well, again, that will be handled elsewhere. It's that he has power over those things. We're seeing that sermon in action, the kingdom in action. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, by the time he is done with all, by the way, it's also important to note that it is a willing kingdom. He cleanses a leper because the leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He was willing to go with a centurion. He was willing to forgive the sins of the paralytic dropped down to the roof. And he was even willing to call to call the lowest of sinners. That was Matthew, the guy who's right <coughs> At the end of that, what Jesus sees is that the need is great. It is huge. And he's touching people and lives have been changed. He's actually healed. By this point, he's transformed an entire city of Capernaum. But then he says to his, his, his servants, his disciples, which just means students, the harvest is truly plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray. You see a need and it's huge and you're overwhelmed. Maybe you didn't see it before, but now Jesus is showing you. So you need to pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers to his harvest. So you ever do this? You pray and then Jesus goes and he taps on your shoulder and you're like, yeah, I'm praying for this. And he's like, yeah, you realize when you prayed you volunteered. So Jesus gives us our second sermon. We call it the Sermon of the Sending. Chapter 10. He's like, do you know what it looks like to go out? This is what it should look like. Don't take a lot of extra things. Let me provide and go out. And when you do, don't be distracted. Get to and tell him the truth and get him to the message I give you. Make sure you get that message out before anything else. It's a simple sermon. Does that make sense? Our first sermon, brand new believers. Brand new touched people, if you will. Our second sermon, those people being raised up to serve. Being now delivered out of their old life into a new one. Chapter 11, John the Baptist says, are you really the real guy? I mean, wait a minute, John the Baptist, the same guy who said, you know, God says, this is what you're going to hear. You're going to see a dove land on him, you know, a spirit like a dove land on him. And by the way, then God gives all of this testimony, and yet he still doubts. Sure, because John the Baptist, like everybody else, is having a hard time reconciling the Messiah Jesus is going to be versus the one they've already made in their heads. So Jesus gives our third sermon. The sermon that might, we might just say, learn from John the Baptist. Who did you go out to see when you went out to see John the Baptist? You go out to see somebody in nice clothes? Well, that's not exactly what you're going to see with John. That's a king. Because what you came to see was a prophet, right? And he truly was a prophet. He goes, but for all the men born of women, all the people born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is going to be greater than that. He was born of a woman. And here's the beautiful part. John the Baptist was only born of a woman. We are born of the Spirit as well. 
and there's the idea. But the Holy Spirit did, was involved in that. Empowered John the Baptist, sure. But what Jesus is telling us is, John the Baptist, if you will, is in essence the end cap to the Old Testament. The baptism of John was repent. There was no salvation in that. It was just stop, you know, you're doing all these things wrong, now stop doing them. Jesus is the conclusion of that. So was John um, like accepted by the people of his time? You know what? You know what, John, I think that's a great question. Because we were in a place that's totally apathetic, it's steeped in religion, that is now devolved and relegated to culture. Does that make sense? It's no longer a passion, it's no longer a conviction, it's now just what we do. We're priesters. Christmas, Easter, we go then. Right? Or if you will, Yom Kippur and Passover. You know, we have we all have our two things. And we add three and it's already too much. And okay, consider this please. Everybody just does what they do because they do it because it's what they do. So God calls a guy to a place where everyone gets robbed in the middle of nowhere. He lives off the land and he shouts the least, the most politically incorrect message ever. He's on fire. John. John, that's it. He's on fire. As well, isn't What's that? When he gets captured by, by Herod, it's like, yeah. he's a good relationship. Herod respected him, feared him. But his wife had a problem. Mm. Uh, and we'll talk about that in another yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. And here's an easy note to note on that. When the religious leaders come, it's important to note this. They ask, who do you think you are? Why do you do this? So what do you say? You know what John the Baptist does? He goes, wait a minute, this isn't about me. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Makes way a straight way for the Lord. I'm not him. You should be looking for him. And it takes down everyone in the ministry if they're not careful. People ask, what about you? What are you doing? How are you doing? It's about you. And you're like, no, no, it's not about about Jesus. And that's why John was so effective. I would say because he was focused and he was on fire. In a culture, dare I say, very similar to our own. How do we see something change here? Someone's going to have to get willing to throw on a belt and eat bugs and, and say the message that everyone will be offended by when it's the truth. I felt like we did that a little bit yesterday, John. You know, it's like it's scripture, it's scripture. Are you with me so far? Yeah. I'm going to have to pick it up, but I don't... You know, it's like there's the challenge. I want to, I want to make sure that I'm not keeping you around all night, but I also want to make sure I'm being clear. So she's like, learn from John the Baptist. But also learn, John the Baptist isn't the end. Jesus is the end. So then the religious leadership starts to stand up. 12 and 13, they demand a sign. They challenge him about Shabbat. And Jesus teaches my, one of my favorite set of sermons, if you will. The fourth sermon are the kingdom parables. Chapter 13 of Matthew. Hear me on this quickly. Seven, seven kingdom of heaven parables. First one, a guy sows seeds. Seeds consistent, but it falls on four soil types. 
and so because there's four soil types, four reactions. One's in essence the pavement. There's no chance to, 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 for any of it to actually sprout. It gets eaten by the birds of the air. It's just food. Well, then there's the second one. The second one's shallow, and because it has a shallow response, or because it lands in shallow soil, it has a shallow response. But the moment that persecution comes, which he relates to the sun, it's not going to make it. It sprouts up quick, because that's what shallow does. And then there's the third one. The third one, it's in a fairly decent soil type, but it's unfortunately there's something already there that's well-established. We're going to call them weeds. And unfortunately, what happens is that the weeds have choked the life out of the seed. But here's the good news. There's a fourth one as well. But the fourth one is a good soil, and that good soil produces 30, 60, 100-fold. Well, let me tell you about a second one. The second one is, even though it starts to grow, the enemy sows tares at night. And if you know anything about Darnell, they look just like wheat until they produce fruit. And once they start bearing fruit, they're, they're poisonous. And it's interesting is the response of the servants is, do you want us to yank that out? And the master says, don't you dare, because you, at this point, you really even can't tell the difference. He goes, don't worry, that's my job. I'll take care of that. But let me tell you about a third one. It's like a mustard seed. And when it grows, it grows quickly and disproportionately, and then the birds of the air set themselves upon it. They actually build their nest. They set up headquarters there. But then there's a fourth one, leaven. And it was like a woman who hid it. Can't be good if she hid it. She throws it in the lump and it infects the whole thing. Oh, don't those make you feel so good? And I'm like, Wow. And you go, well, but the third one, that's kind of sweet. It's, you know, the whole mustard seed. Well, let me say the birds of the air were eating the seed in the first parable. They can't be good by the third one. They're actually setting up their structure in the actual structure of the tree itself. They can't. If all there were were four of those seven parables, I'd be like, who wants to be a part of this? Because let me tell you a couple more parables. Kingdom of Heaven is like actually like a man who walked through a field. When he walked through a field, he saw a jewel there. And that jewel was so precious, he was willing to give up everything else he had to buy the whole field. And there was a guy that was like a merchant. And he went looking for a perfect pearl, if you will. And it was so precious, he gave up everything else so he could have that. Those are the next two. And then finally he said, there's one like a dragnet. And I remind you, four of those guys are fishermen. Like, you know, he throws it, he casts it, he pulls it in. Fish of all sorts. Don't worry about it. In the end of it, all the chief fishermen knows how to sort of do them what's good and what's bad. You with me or not? Bad, by the way, is thrown in the fire. No, don't worry. This is one of my favorite things that Jesus teaches. Because I look at those first four and I'm like, this is kind of depressing. What do all four of those have in common? They're all political. This is what happens with the politics of the church. It is going to grow and there will be people calling themselves Christians in all of these different states. And in some of that is going to be very, very disheartening. But even when it starts to grow, there's going to be implants that are going to look the same, but in the end of it all, they're going to turn out to be very opposite. And then it's going to grow disproportionately large. And as it grows disproportionately large, they're going to actually set up their headquarters within the church. You see things and they're like the Bible schmeibel and this and that. And we should be, it's like it's all happening in the church. I mean, church in mass. And he goes, and then there's the one where the woman sneaks in the leaven so it infects the whole thing. And you're like, wow, that's horrible. He goes, listen, you should not become part of the kingdom of heaven because of the politic, because you will, you will have a problem. Because well, let me tell you about the next thing. It all depends on what side you see you're at. Someone's walking to a field. As he's walking to a field, he sees a jewel so precious, he gives up everything to get it. Now, there's two aspects to that. You're the person walking to the field. The problem is, 
you can't buy the kingdom of heaven. And it says he gives up everything to purchase it. So I can't put me in that. So there's only one place left for me to be. I'm the jewel. You're the jewel. The kingdom of heaven is like God who walked the field and he walked. And the field, he said, was the world. He saw you. And you were so precious. Do you realize that you are so valuable that only one person in the universe could afford you, the richest person in the universe, and it cost them everything else? And he goes, and why did he add the end of pearl? Isn't it kind of the same story? Because a pearl isn't kosher. Because where do you get a pearl from? Shellfish. Is where the first four are political. Yeah. The next, the next two, are personal. Do you know why you should be part of the kingdom of heaven? Because my God gave up everything to have you. And if that's your motivation, you're going to be okay. You'll make it through all the weird political nastiness. Does that make sense? Let's see it. If you walk with Christ for a couple of years, you have your own war stories to tell. But they're not because God saw you and treated you poorly. It was because man set up his thing. So then the last thing is, well, where's the fairness in that? What about all those crazy nut jobs that are hurting all this? That's the purpose of the last one. Is don't worry, in the end of it all, I'll pull it all in, and I know what goes in the fire, and I know what doesn't. Here's the good news. Some of those things that were jerks before don't always stay jerks. And that's why he doesn't just burn them right then, because if that were the case, some of us wouldn't have made it past year one. He's patient. Does that make sense? That is our, our fourth of seven sermons, the sermons of the parables. So then we see the parables in action, chapters 14 through 20. Now we're way picking it up, let's hope. John the Baptist is killed, and that means Jesus is now looking. John the Baptist always forerunts everything. He is announced, and then Jesus emerges. He's in prison. Jesus starts his public ministry in, in, a, in a very public way. And then John is murdered, and Jesus sets his sights towards the cross. He feeds the 5,000, and then the 4,000. Uh, 5,000 Jews, 4,000 Gentiles. Important to note. With the 5,000 Jewish people and their families, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Would that make sense for Jewish people? For the Gentiles, there were 4,000. How many baskets were left over? Seven. Why? You ever know how many Gentile countries there were that were in Canaan when they came to take them over? There were seven. Mm-hmm. Consider that for what it's worth. He walks in the sea, a Gentile shows a faith. There's a continued problem in regards to people having a real problem with Jesus. He's really clearly being elevated among the, over the religious leadership at this point, and they have a real problem with it. Does that make sense? So he said, no one's going to their churches anymore. Everyone's going out and walking with Jesus. Praise God. And that takes us, by the way, for what it's worth to our second of our five hills. The other ones, by the way, clump together pretty quickly. Uh, Jesus is transfigured. Fairly likely that might be matrimony. It's the highest place. It tells us after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. Now consider this for what it's worth, because this leads us to our next sermon, our fifth of seven. Jesus goes up on a hill. He doesn't take all 12. He takes three. And one of the things Peter does up there is make you thankful you weren't Peter. You know, and it says, he said, it's a good thing we're here. Let's make tabernacles, because he's expecting the kingdom of heaven. This is a cool place to set it up and check it out. It's just three of them. 
And it says he said this because he didn't know what to say. <laughs> General rule. I, by the way, I've always been really blessed to have friends that are quiet. When I look at Daniel, I look at Jaden, and I say, I'm like, and I learned from this. It's like if when there's when you don't know what to say, nothing is a great option. And I can imagine. I mean, it's like. And by the way, for what it's worth, this is our second hill of our five. It says Jesus is talking about in the Greek his exodus is the word. I think that's interesting. The second of five hills, Jesus is there talking about his exodus. How many books are there in the Torah? There are five. What's the second one? And we'll talk about that when we get to Romans. Yeah, okay, anyways. Just throwing things as we run through the hallways. Three guys up there with Jesus. He's transfigured. You never see Jesus the same after that. The other nine guys are down in the bottom and they're trying to heal a guy's son. Does that sound familiar? And they ain't making it. You with me on this? Three guys were up there. First time we see the three. As the power trio is up there, they come down. Now, by the way, remember Jesus had to send them two by two? Someone had to get paired with Judas Iscariot. That would have been rough. Could you imagine? Like, man, I don't think we have the same stories. Well, anyways. So they go down and Jesus heals this guy. But you know what they do from that point on? They start arguing over who's greatest. <laughs> think about how easy it would be. Well, Dude, you weren't up on the hill. You should have seen what we saw on the hill. I can't even, I can't, I can't even tell you. Sorry. I can't even tell you. Um, by the way, if we were down here, you guys wouldn't be throwing holy water and finding a relic. Because that kid would have been delivered the moment we were there. Do you see how easy it would have been to argue in a moment like that? So guess what Jesus has to do? He has to teach a sermon on who's the greatest. And that, by the way, makes sense. That's our fifth sermon. Does that make sense? Finally, we make it to Jerusalem by chapter 21. It's important to note in a 24th, a 26th chapter book, by the way, uh, 28th chapter book, we're in 20 and we finally got to Jerusalem for the last week. Give you an idea. Obviously, the majority of Jesus' ministry in Matthew is in Galilee. That's the emphasis. In John's Gospel, Jesus gets to Jerusalem in chapter 13 of a 21-chapter book. In other words, a third of the book is Galilee. And that's with frequent trips to Jerusalem. Two-thirds of it is actually in, in Jerusalem. Now, point in this. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He clears the temple. He says, and by the way, he talks about a wedding feast parable. I have to say this quick. Am I killing you guys yet? Okay, thank you. Because there are a couple of things in this one that are a little hard to swallow because we don't understand. And here's one of them. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who had a marriage. He set a marriage for his son. Put a wedding for his son. That would make the son a prince. Is that fair? And when he does, he invites all of these people and they won't come. He'll ultimately say, they were called, but they weren't getting chosen. Why weren't they getting chosen? Because they didn't come. It's like you might have gotten called, but you checked caller ID and you did not answer. Or anyways, and they have their reasons. And all of them are lame. So he says, well then, but we want this house full. Why? Do you know why a king would want a house full during the marriage of his son? It honors his son. So go and find anyone who's willing to come. Go into the highways and byways and go under bridges and go find the guys in a box and ask them, hey, are you cool with the king on this? Because he's having a marriage for his son and I want to bless you. Come on in. If you're cool with it, come on in. And the place is full. Not full enough. What's clear is he wished he had more, but just the same. 
But then there's this guy that shows up if you read the story, right? And he doesn't he says and he doesn't have wedding clothes. And the king goes, Friend, how is it you came in without wedding clothes? And he casts him out to darkness and gnashing of teeth. And you think, What a moody king that guy. He's like, This is like the kingdom of heaven. Have you read the story? Well, let me tell you something you might not know. Because we have a different culture in regards to weddings. The father of the groom was responsible to clothe every member of the wedding party. This is one of the ways that you could be confident how big your wedding party was going to be. Because if you couldn't afford it, they weren't coming. Does that make sense? What's clear is he's a king. If there's a guy that has resources, it should be the king. So if a guy shows up and he doesn't have a wedding outfit on, why wouldn't he have a wedding outfit on? Or he is protesting the marriage. The one person who shows up without that outfit on is protesting the marriage. I mean, if he's going to invite guys under bridges, what guy wasn't invited? The person he cast out wasn't because the poor guy just couldn't afford a tux. It's because he just, he was, he'd be okay to be fed, but he was not into the wedding of the prince. Mm-hmm. Does that make more sense? And there are going to be people that are like, I'll take everything about the church but Jesus. I'm like, well, there shouldn't be anything left. For what it's worth. And after all of these things that he speaks about here, for instance, he goes into his six to seven sermons, and it's the woe sermon. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites that you are. Why is he teaching that here? Because he's been leading us up to it when he starts to talk about these things. When Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, everybody throws their zinger at Jesus to shut him down. So right to pay taxes to, to Caesar, who's going to do that? A Herodian and a Pharisee that's playing out the law. Well, what about the, the Sadducees? They're the liberals. They're like just like a classical liberal approach. You're going to invent a story that's going to show that you're non-compassionate. Well, you know, there's this woman. I mean, if they're really married in heaven, you know, come on now. I mean, there's marriage. And, you know, if they're, and that, by the way, what the Sadducees were teaching, by the way, was there was no afterlife. You're aware of that, right? They're like, that would be ludicrous. I mean, this, this guy's married to this girl. He dies. She has to marry his brother because that's the leveret marriage of Deuteronomy 25. She has seven of those guys and they all die. So which one she married to in heaven? You realize that, right? When, you, when somebody comes from an, an entirely liberal perspective, they have to invent a story that shows that your truth must not be good. And so what happens? Jesus is like, you error not knowing the scriptures. First of all, nobody's married or given to marriage in heaven. Which, dare I say, what that tells us is, nobody has sex in heaven. Now, I'm not trying to be weird, but that applies to other verses in Genesis. But anyways, all of that said, Jesus looks at all of that, and they all try to challenge him, and then he goes off on them. He's like, look at what are you scribes and Pharisees? Because in the simplest sense of it all, it's all about you, and it's not about God. And that takes us to our last three hills. I'd like you to consider... The first hill was the hill of the new believers. Remember when he touched everyone and all their lives were simple? Can I just say this, please? And we're almost done. Thank you for your patience. What part of this do you cut? Think about what ministry would have looked like 
back in Matthew 5 through 7. Can I just say it was one thing? If I could get him to Jesus, he could fix it. I don't have to understand what your weirdness is. If I can get you to Jesus, he can fix you. I don't have to be an expert in any area other than this. I'm a fisherman. If you're willing to pop in the net, I'm willing to carry you to Jesus. Who better to carry a paralytic stewing in their own waist than a fisherman who knows how to handle smells? Who better to grab the chain of a demoniac and bring him to Jesus than a guy with callous hands? I don't find any of them, by the way, that seem to be theologians in all of them. Like, you know what Christianity is missing? Open hearts and callous hands. People with a simple faith that says, if I could just get him to Jesus, we could fix him. Does that make sense? Now, our two hills so far have been that hill and then Jesus transfigured. Now Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives and his disciples come to him. Chapters 24 and 25. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You are aware that's three questions, right? And Jesus gives this last sermon. The Sermon on the End Times, chapters 24 and 25. You know what he's doing? He's answering the question. Finally, Jesus is arrested. He has Passover. He's arrested. He's murdered. And there's a... Now again, I'm only walking... I'm running you through the hallways. I'm aware of that. But you get when you get there, you realize there's a big emphasis on hanging a sign above Jesus that says King of the Jews in three languages. That would make sense. And that takes us to our fourth of five hills, Golgotha the hill of the skull. Then Jesus is resurrected. We're aware of that. And it ends with this. Listen to this verse. Chapter 28, verse 16. His disciples are in Galilee. Now listen. Here are our four hills so far. The hill of the Mount of Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, that is in Capernaum. Does anyone know where Capernaum is? In Galilee. Jesus is transfigured on a very high hill. Fairly likely that could be Mount Hermon, although it doesn't say. That is north of Galilee, in the area near Taldem. North of Taldem. Then, Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives. Where is that at? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Then Jesus dies on Golgotha. Where is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You with me so far? Galilee, north of Galilee, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You with me on this? Jesus is not resurrected. Listen to this verse. Then he says, by the way, the angels keep telling him to go someplace and the disciples don't seem to go. Where was that? Do you know? Galilee. Galilee. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee, finally. To the mountain Jesus had appointed for them. Which mountain do you think that was? Could I dare suggest to you the first one, the only one that we know is in Galilee of these? Why? Could you see Jesus sitting with his disciples and going, God, Remember how simple it was in the beginning? All you had to do was bring them to me and I could fix them. Don't complicate ministry. Trust me. You've seen what political religion looks like. I've warned you in parables, but you've watched it when they hung me on a cross. Don't be that. You know how to stop being that? Just be simple. Bring them to me, I'll take care of them. And he says this then. Does that make sense? Mm. And then he says, all authority has been given to me. Sounds like a good statement for a king, don't you think? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Because I have all this authority, I have the authority to give it to you. Go therefore 
and make disciples. Now, is that the same as preaching the gospel? It's not. Remember, disciples are students. Go and make students. I'm sending you as ambassadors. Dare I say, I'm sending you as travel agents. I'm sending you as ambassadors to the kingdom of heaven. Now go and make students. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, now you need to know this. I'm going to be with you all the time. Even to the end of the age. And that's how it ends. It starts with a king being born and it ends with a king sending out his delegate. In between, we have our five hills. Our hill where Jesus transforms lives when all they had to do was bring him to him. The hill where Jesus starts to reveal just the littlest bit more of who he is on the hill of transfiguration. The hill where Jesus sits, the, the uh, Mount of Olives, where Jesus sits and tells us what the end times look like. You're aware that Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives? As a matter of fact, Gethsemane means olive press. It would make sense to put the olive press on the Mount of Olives. Doesn't that make sense? Then Jesus dies on Golgotha. And then Jesus takes us back to that first one and says, Remember when it was simple here? Could you imagine if what Jesus said tonight, just to start us on this, is beyond all of the ministry, before you had a title other than student saved, you brought people to me because you just knew I could fix them. You didn't have a quota. You didn't have a, hier- a hierarchy other than me. It was just really simple. And out of love, you just did it because you just knew it worked. Don't forget that. We don't have an emphasis on Jesus' ascension here because do you know where Jesus ascends from? The Mount of Olives. But it's not, it's not mentioned for a good purpose here, at least in this. Because the emphasis, as the king is sending us out, is delegates to the kingdom. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that's our basic rundown of the Gospel of Matthew.